1: I called up Slate's Mark Joseph Stern because I needed someone, anyone, to explain what exactly happened at the Supreme Court this term.
2: Some very bad things just happened, Mary. Like after some consensus for a couple weeks, it all blew up in a bad way.
1: In a two-day span, the justices most likely killed affirmative action put a stake through the heart of the president's plan for student debt relief, and made the case that discriminating against gay Americans was okay. And reading their opinions, it was clear these justices had words for each other.
2: At the end of the term, all of this got so heated and scathing and It reminds me of 2012, actually, which was when the first Obamacare decision came down. And it was so clear that the justices all hated each other. Uh, Roberts famously quipped he was going to Malta so that he could be on an impregnable island fortress. Um, it, It kind of feels like that again now.
1: The strange thing, from afar, is that before this past week, it really seemed like the justices were building interesting coalitions on the bench conservatives and liberals united to defend the Voting Rights Act and ruled in favor of indigenous Americans. But Mark says to understand the Supreme Court right now, you need to understand who exactly is at the center of it. Looking back over coverage from, I don't know, like a year ago, I think there's a lot of talk that the Chief Justice John Roberts was being sidelined a bit at the court. These super conservative justices had arrived. They were you know, rushing in with all sorts of vim and vigor, does it feel like the chief justice is back?
2: Oh, he's back, baby. This is the Roberts court once again.
1: When it was time to rein in affirmative action, Roberts took the wheel. When the conservatives wanted to blow up President Biden's student debt relief plan, Roberts was all over that
2: too. And I think it's a reminder to everybody in this country that he is back in charge. He has wrested control of this court back from uh, from, from the more conservative bloc, And um, what he says goes.
1: Embracing the Roberts way means taking a subtler approach, an approach that can look like consensus building until it doesn't. Mark says the conservative justices are playing a long game now. And John Roberts is showing them how to do it.
2: I am saying they're trying to carefully time their revolution so that it does not outpace what the public and the other branches will accept. They don't want to go too far too fast.
1: Today on the show, the Chief Justice is on the rise at the Supreme Court, and all of the justices are flexing their rhetorical muscles. So, what do this year's biggest decisions say about where they all go from here? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.
2: Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: Okay, to tell the story of the Supreme Court term, I think we actually have to start before all the rulings that have just come out and talk about the ethics scandals, which went public just as the court was wrapping up their work, basically. I mean, there'd been stuff before that, but... You know, the, the big one with Clarence Thomas that sort of really grabbed the spotlight, that was April, I think, when ProPublica published this huge report about how he was receiving gifts and trips from a conservative billionaire. Can you tell me, like, how are we only learning about this stuff
2: now? So, um, I mean, Dahlia Lithwick and I have written a series about the failures of Supreme Court journalism, which I suppose were partly complicit. Um, the Supreme Court press corps has not treated the justices like public officials deserving of scrutiny and skepticism. Um, quite frequently, the Supreme Court press corps acted like employees of the court. And um, what happened this year is that ProPublica totally blew up that paradigm and said, actually, these are public servants. They deserve to be investigated like anybody else, like any senator, like any president, like any cabinet secretary. And in just kind of scratching the surface, they discovered some truly sordid things. And the justices were not ready for it. Some of these guys are furious. I mean, Sam Alito is out of his mind with rage about these exposés, and they just don't know how to handle it. It's not built into their chambers or the court. And we are seeing the consequences of that.
1: Yeah, Sam Alito, that was a whole other string of reporting that came from ProPublica where, you know, he too was benefiting from rich benefactors taking him on trips.
2: Yes, uh, same story as Clarence Thomas. Seems like there's a, a a kind of through line here. The conservative establishment has kind of ensconced these justices in uh, a social circle where everything they need is provided for. They get these lavish trips and vacations and all of the incentives flow toward remaining just as hardcore conservative as ever because everyone around them says, hey, you're doing a great job. I, I really believe that the justice. who issued the Dobbs decision overturning Roe did not expect and were not prepared for the backlash to that case because they are surrounded by people, some billionaires, some mere millionaires, who were telling them, you do this and you're going to be a legend. This is the best thing in the world. You know, this is what we've all wanted and you're just going to be feted to the moon. Um, They did not expect the fallout from that decision. Um, And it's just a reminder, these guys are anti. amateurs when it comes to public relations and they don't seem to be learning on the job.
1: Can you take yourself back to the headspace you were in at the start of last month when all these decisions were just about to come out? What were you expecting? What were you waiting for?
2: Um, I mean, a lot of alcohol, some edibles, you know, Netflix, all that. No, I mean, you know, we all have our coping mechanisms each June. But what decisions were you anticipating? I think I was anticipating pretty much what happened. I think the only decision that really surprised me was the Voting Rights Act decision, up- upholding the ban on racial gerrymandering. Everything else came down pretty much as I had anticipated. Thankfully, I have um, text threads with friends to prove this. I've got the receipts if you want them, Mary. (laughs) Uh, But some of these cases were pretty damn easy to call. Uh, Again, the only real surprise was Roberts and Kavanaugh pivoting in this one voting rights act case. Important, but certainly not enough to wash away all of these severely conservative decisions involving civil rights laws uh, involving Biden's student debt relief plan, involving affirmative action and habeas and the rights of criminal defendants. All of that stuff came out hard right. And that is what I was anticipating come June 1st.
1: Yeah. But tell me about the first couple of weeks of June, because we had a couple of decisions where I feel like, I mean, even Slate writers were saying, you know, did John Roberts really just save voting rights? They were like, hold it. Maybe something's happening here. Did you ever have a moment of feeling like that?
2: I, I don't think I ever felt like, wow, something's happening. This court's coming to its senses. It's really moderate. I, I never felt that way. If you ever let yourself feel that way, you're going to get burned and you're going to humiliate yourself. Um, I was pleasantly surprised by the vote in Allen v. Milligan uh, on the Voting Rights Act. I was not surprised but um, cheered by the lopsided vote in Holland uh, v. Burkeen uh, upholding the Indian Child Welfare Act. Um, and it seemed to me again that the message that Kavanaugh, Barrett and Roberts were sending was that some of these conservative litigators were getting too big for their britches and that the court was not necessarily shuffling back toward the middle, um, but willing to stand pat and turn away these pretty extreme cases um, in a way that kept the law where it was, but felt like a victory for progressives because it avoided catastrophe. One of the biggest problems last term was that Kavanaugh and Barrett kept straying from the chief and siding with. Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch and these really extreme decisions. And I think what they discovered was, you know, the chief has been at this for a lot longer. He knows how to play the game. And the kind of backlash we saw after 2022 was totally foreign. None of that had happened to that degree.
1: You mean the post-Dobbs backlash?
2: Yes, that's right. So what we saw earlier in June was Kavanaugh and Barrett kind of hiding out in the fallout shelter that John Roberts built for them after the atomic bomb that was Dobbs.
1: Why do you say that?
2: Well, look at the votes, Mary. I mean, look at how these guys are voting in big cases where there's not a super clear conservative agenda item to be checked off. So look at the Indian Child Welfare Act, Burkeen, right? There are some conservatives in red states who really wanted to dismantle that law. That was an option available to the court. Um, And yet they said no to this opportunity to fundamentally rewrite The law in a more conservative way. That's not what they were doing last term. Last term, they were taking a big swing every time uh, they had the opportunity to. And so it does seem like they've slowed their roles. Again, it doesn't mean they've changed their minds. It doesn't mean they've moderated, but they have perhaps changed the pace of the revolution that they hope to usher in.
1: Do you ever worry the justices are reading your writing and thinking, like, just you wait?
2: Um, Well, I try to write in a way that would prevent them from thinking just you wait if they read me. Uh, I really do not support drawing any broad conclusions about the court until the final decision has been issued. Um, I I think it's always premature. And we saw that with with some pieces in The New York Times and The Washington Post speculating about this suddenly more moderate court. You know, it's not a moderate court. It remains extremely conservative. There are just some big swings it's not yet willing to to take. And it did feel to me like the court front-loaded these more moderate decisions in June to build up some political capital that they then spent down over this last rather brutal week.
1: After the break, this last brutal week, and what it indicates about the years ahead.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
1: And they just tacked in a really different direction than we'd seen earlier in the month. Let's start with affirmative action. How did the justices rule and what's the fallout been?
2: So these cases were called Students for Fair Admissions which is a group that opponents of affirmative action created after it became clear that if you were a white student who uh, filed a lawsuit claiming that a black person took your place, you would become an Internet meme and everyone would mock you. So instead, we have this kind of front group who filed lawsuits against Harvard and the University of North Carolina claiming their affirmative action programs violate the Equal Protection Clause. And the court held that they did. And Chief Justice Roberts' opinion for the court does not explicitly overturn affirmative affirmative action or the precedents allowing it. But what he says is that these particular programs do not comply with that precedent. And then he redefines the precedent to make it so incredibly stringent that no affirmative action program could possibly satisfy its demands. Roberts got to essentially overturn affirmative action without drawing headlines saying that he had overturned 50 years of precedent, which is never something he likes to do.
1: It stood out to me that the justices were really fighting with each other in their footnotes in really personal ways, especially Clarence Thomas and Kintaji Brown-Jackson. Can you talk about what reading those opinions was like and whether it stood out to you too?
2: It definitely stood out to me. Um, Reading those opinions was in many ways a pleasure for me because I you know, spend all of my time thinking about the Supreme Court. And these were unusually psychologically revealing on both ends, both what Thomas and Jackson wrote. Um, they, They were expressing themselves in ways that's pretty unusual for a judge in this country. You know, you had Clarence Thomas reflecting on, on his youth in the segregated South, but then you had Justice Jackson reflecting on her life and experiences in a nation that remains haunted by the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow and so much else, redlining, et cetera. Those two don't seem to like each other very much. <laughs> they, well, so, so look, remember this. For his entire career until now, Clarence Thomas has been the only Black justice on the bench. There has been no other Black justice to question his account of the Black experience of American life. There has been no other justice to present an alternate vision of what race should mean under the Constitution. And suddenly there is, and it's Justice Jackson, and she is contesting everything he has to say and has ever said that really bothers him in a deep way his barbs at jackson go far beyond the norm they are venomous um, in their efforts to really uh, i think condemn her as a race obsessed demagogue who wants to perform this mass sociological experiment on black children as guinea pigs i mean the language is really sharp and yeah that's not normal but it seems pretty clear that clarence thomas just hates justice jackson
1: I want to also talk about Student Debt and 303 Creative, two other cases that the opinions came out on Friday. These are all similarly cases where the justices split on ideological lines. Six conservatives voting one way, three liberals voting another. So let's start with 303 Creative. What was this case and, and what are the ramifications of the ruling
2: right now? So this is a case that was manufactured to weaken um, LGBTQ non-discrimination laws. Uh, it involves a website designer named Lori Smith, uh, who has never, in fact, been asked by a same-sex couple to create a website for their wedding. Um, at points, her lawyers suggested that she had, but that is definitely not true, as the New Republic reported the day before this decision came down. So never before has a same-sex couple tried to engage her services, and yet... Lori Smith went to federal court in Colorado, where she lives and works, and demanded an exemption from Colorado's civil rights law, which is pretty run of the mill and says that uh, there's no discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation in, in public accommodations. I don't know why that all sounds so susical when I put it that way.
1: <laughs> I mean, the argument she was making was, if I make a website, because that's what she does, she makes websites for people. And it's for a gay wedding. It's forcing me to speak something I do not believe. So so it's infringing on my free speech rights to make gay wedding websites.
2: Is that right? Yes, and that's exactly right. And the court agreed with her. This is the first time the Supreme Court has ever granted a commercial business the right to discriminate. Um, The previous cases in this area involve private associations and individuals like the Boy Scouts. Uh, The court has until now drawn a very firm line uh, between private associations and and for-profit businesses and said that the latter um, are part of a marketplace that can be uh, mandated to be open to the public, to all comers. Moreover, Justice Gorsuch says there's a difference between discriminating on the basis of status and on the basis of message. So he says that Lori Smith will serve an individual gay client, but she won't serve a same-sex couple uh, because that would require her to express support for their marriage, which she believes to be, quote, false. Uh, And this is one of the scariest things about Justice Gorsuch's opinion And, and Justice Sotomayor brings in several examples, real world examples, a funeral parlor that did not want to hold a memorial service for a gay person who had died because he was gay. You know, I think you and I would agree that that's discrimination on the basis of identity, but the funeral parlor said, no, no, no. We just don't want to express the message that we support homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Is the, the, the person who works at Dairy Queen gonna rebrand as an ice cream artist and say that by pouring soft serve, she is expressing a message that she supports the customer's identity? It sounds ridiculous, but these are the cases that are gonna start coming down the pipeline.
1: Okay, one more case. The justices also threw out President Biden's student debt plan, which would have forgiven more than $400 billion in student debt. The decision here hinged on something called the major questions doctrine. Can you just remind us what that is? Like, what's a major question?
2: Uh, Well, it's whatever five members of the court think. Um, This is (laughs) an idea hatched by Roberts and other conservative judges that basically you can ignore or manipulate the plain text of a federal law specifically a law that grants power to the executive branch, um, when it seems to be involving a major question, a question of economic and political significance. And that when that happens, when five justices think that the question is really significant, that the court can sort of set aside what the law actually says and try to read Congress's mind and ask whether Congress really would have wanted this to happen. And so the law in question here here expressly allows the Secretary of Education to waive or modify student debt, which is what he has done. And it says he can do so in a national emergency, which COVID indisputably was. So Roberts invokes the major question doctrine to say, well, this involves so much money. We can't read waive or modify to mean what they usually mean. We have to impose this special secret definition that only we know that says that waive or modify only allows for little itty bitty changes, not really big changes like Biden tried to do.
1: And I think in their defense, the conservatives would say they're trying to prevent executive overreach here. Like Biden is just being pretty extra with the student debt plan. And that's not what Congress meant.
2: Well, if Congress opposes the student debt plan, it's free to repeal it. And in fact, there was a bill in Congress to repeal Biden's student debt plan which failed to pass. Um, And what Congress has actually passed is a law called the Heroes Act that grants sweeping powers to the Secretary of Education to modify student loans, in part because this is debt that's held by the federal government. And it's kind of a bedrock rule that the federal government decides what it wants to do with its own money. And I'll just add that, you know, all kinds of federal programs, pretty much any federal program that involves money is gonna involve a lot of it. It's a big country, 330 million people, the biggest economy in the world. What the court has done in this case by saying, oh, a lot of money means we get to strike it down is say that any kind of major presidential initiative is subject to extremely searching judicial review just because it happens to affect a lot of people, which is certainly not the system that I think the framers set up and not the system that has operated in this country until fairly recently. So
1: what is this court going to be hearing next term?
2: So the court recently took up a case called Rahimi, which asks whether the Second Amendment uh, prohibits the government from disarming an individual who is under a restraining order for domestic violence.
1: This terrifies me. Uh,
2: it should terrify you. I think this is the big test of the court's recent decision in Bruin, um, which established this really bizarre standard for 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 gun restrictions that's seemingly impossible to meet.
1: It basically says, like, you need to look back at what the founders thought about guns. In
2: 1791. And guess what? The founders didn't think that domestic violence was a crime, so there's no laws like this from 1791 because they thought that men could shoot their wives. And like, does that mean that men have a right to bear arms against their intimate partners today? I, I don't know what the court's going to say, but it certainly scares me that the court has taken this on. So as someone who reads every,
1: every dissent, every ruling, everything that comes out of this court, Is there a particular line or phrase that really sticks with you from from what happened this year?
2: Yeah. You know what? I'll tell you. It's a line in Justice Kagan's dissent in the student debt case that is pretty unusual, though easy to miss, where she says that the court does not simply misread or warp the Constitution. She, She says that the court... Violates the Constitution with its decision. And that is not the kind of rhetoric we're used to. You know, the court has traditionally liked to position itself above the other branches of government and acted as though it is the final arbiter of what the Constitution means. So by definition, Anything it does cannot be unconstitutional. And Justice Kagan here is throwing down the gauntlet and saying, I think this court has gone so rogue in this case, and I think in several other big cases, that it has actually transgressed its own power under the Constitution and broken the law. And that shows the fury that closed this term. That shows that for all of the little compromises along the way, when it comes down to this big stuff, the liberals are furious. They think the conservatives are moving fast and breaking almost everything. And they are increasingly willing to call out the majority on highly personal terms, not just for making mistakes, but for violating the constitution that they are charged with interpreting. That feels like a step forward uh, in the kind of rhetoric we're seeing from this court and I am fascinated to see where it leads next term.
1: Mark Joseph Stern, I'm super grateful for your time and your reporting and I hope you have a vacation planned.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Mary. Same to you.
1: Mark Joseph Stern writes about courts and the law for Slate. Make sure you go on over to slate.com and check out all of the amazing things he's written this month as the decisions came down. It is worth your time. All right, that's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support us is to join Slate Plus. It's our membership program. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to find out how. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the holiday. I will catch you soon.